Well, with that, let's begin our reading today in the New Testament. May 3rd, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. After dark one evening, a Jewish religious leader named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, came to speak with Jesus. Teacher, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are proof enough that God is with you. Jesus replied, I assure you, unless you are born again, you can never see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, The truth is, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives new life from heaven. So don't be surprised at my statement that you must be born again. Just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. What do you mean? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, You are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, I am telling you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe us. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about the things that happen here on earth, how can you possibly believe if I tell you what is going on in heaven? For only I, the Son of Man, have come to earth and will return to heaven again. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so I, the Son of Man, must be lifted up on a pole, so that everyone who believes in me will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. There is no judgment awaiting those who trust Him. But those who do not trust Him have already been judged for not believing in the only Son of God. Their judgment is based on this fact. The light from heaven came into the world, but they loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. They hate the light because... They want to sin in darkness. They stay away from the light for fear their sins will be exposed and they will be punished. But those who do what is right come to the light gladly so everyone can see that they are doing what God wants. God is the goal of the gospel. And all who have faith in Him will be reconciled to Him. All that leads us to this last word and this description of the gospel, and that word is forever. Forever. And it's this point where I want to remind us that eternity is at stake in how we respond to this gospel. And I want to remind you of a risk and a reality. First, the risk. Please hear this. The risk is we can know all of these truths and still not be saved. 
please don't miss this. We can know all of the truths that we've just talked about and still not be saved. Some would think that I'm trying to complicate things at this point. Don't you know, Dave, the Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Yes, that's exactly what the Bible says. But the Bible also says that that belief is obviously, it's obviously more than just intellectual belief. The demons believe these things. You can know all about God and about Jesus and about the cross and about the resurrection. You can know all about him coming back. You can know all about the details of Jesus' life and still not be saved. It's why we're diving into the series. What is involved in saving faith? But just hear me at this point. We can know all of these truths and still not be saved. Saving faith obviously involves more than intellectual acknowledgement. That leads us to the reality. Second, the reality is our eternal destiny hinges on a biblical response to the gospel. Our eternal destiny hinges on a biblical response to the gospel. And this is why you hear me over and over again pointing out the language and the traditions that we use to equate with salvation. Eternity is too important to be flippant with salvation. The question is, well, how do we get this salvation then? If being justified is God's declaration that you're righteous, if we can't pay for it because it's free, if we can't work for it because it's grace, then how do you get this justification? And the answer is not to check off these boxes or to recite these words or to do this action. That is not the answer. The answer is to cast your heart, to cast your life before God, throw yourself before Him and acknowledge that you have nothing, absolutely nothing to bring in your hands. That sounds almost easy, but it's not. This is when I go back to Whitfield and Wesley. This last week I was reading David Brainerd, incredible biography. And for a year he was wrestling. Every time he would come to God, he would feel, he'd find himself saying, well, I've done something. I've worked, I've done this or that. And he would come back again, again, and again to his own sinfulness, his own selfishness. And it was a year before of longing, wrestling with God over his sin before he realized that he really can't do anything. Come before God with absolutely nothing, nothing to your credit, no prayer to your credit, no work to your credit, nothing to your credit, to come home for him with open hands. This is faith. And to ask him to declare you righteous, plead for him to save you from your sins. This is the this is the journey that saints throughout history have gone on as they have wrestled with the sinfulness of their souls and come to realize the depth of God's grace. And we have missed it because of a McDonald's-style Christianity that is in and out. Let's get this done. Make sure my eternity is okay before I get to lunch today. This is not the way salvation works. Salvation. And I'm not saying you have to work. That's the point. You don't have to work. We've got to get to the point where we realize honestly before God that there's nothing we bring to the table and where we trust in Him with open arms. We come to the end of ourselves, and we do what William Cowper did when he was 28 years old, 1759. He had struggled for years with depression. He had tried to commit suicide three different ways. He was committed to St. Albans' insane asylum. And when he was there, six months after his time began there, he found a Bible, and he opened to Romans chapter 3, verse 25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement for faith in his blood. He later wrote, immediately, 
I received the strength to believe it, and the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement He had made. I saw my pardon sealed in His blood, and all the fullness and completeness of His justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel. He lived 35 years after that, during which he penned the words of that great hymn, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood will never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Today we're reading from Psalm 104, verses 1 through 23. Psalm 104 praises God for His fullness as Creator. Psalm 105, and we'll get to that, is uh, for His faithfulness as Redeemer, and Psalm 106, for His forgiveness as Savior of His people. How easy it is to take for granted the world that God has created. We see the blemishes, but not the blessings, and we often forget what kind of world God has given us. It is a place of greatness, no doubt. Not the greatest of man, but the greatness of God. Psalm 104, verses 1 through 23. Praise the Lord, I tell myself. O Lord my God, how great you are! You are robed with honor and with majesty. You are dressed in a robe of light. You stretch out the starry curtain of the heavens. You lay out the rafters of your home in the rain clouds. You make the clouds your chariots. You ride upon the wings of the wind. The winds are your messengers. Flames of fire are your servants. You placed the world on its foundation, so it would never be moved. You clothed the earth with floods of water, water that covered even the mountains. At the sound of your rebuke, the water fled. At the sound of your thunder, it fled away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the levels you decreed. Then you set a firm boundary for the seas, so they would never again cover the earth. You make the springs pour water into ravines, so streams gush down from the mountains. They provide water for all the animals, and the wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds nest beside the streams, and sing among the branches of the trees. You send rain on the mountains from your heavenly home, and you fill the earth with the fruit of your labor. You cause grass to grow for the cattle. You cause plants to grow for people to use. You allow them to produce food from the earth, wine to make them glad, olive oil as lotion for their skin, and bread to give them strength. The trees of the Lord are well cared for, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, and the storks make their homes in the firs. High in the mountains are pastures for the wild goats, and the rocks form a refuge for rock badgers. You made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun that knows when to set. You send the darkness, and it becomes night when all the forest animals prowl about. 
Then the young lions roar for their food, but they are dependent on God. At dawn, they slink back into their dens to rest. Then people go off to their work. They labor until the evening shadows fall again. Proverbs 14, verses 20 and 21. The poor are despised even by their neighbors, while the rich have many friends. It is sin to despise one's neighbors. Blessed are those who help the poor.